Uh, we are continuing our study of the book of the Gospel of John this morning. And so if you uh, have a Bible with you, please turn to John chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible, there are some in the back. That, that is our gift to you uh, if you need a physical copy of the text. Uh, last week, Pastor Tyler uh, spoke on the first half of the Gospel of John chapter uh, 13. Uh, and I will be uh, following up from there. I'll be covering verses... 18 through the end of the chapter. So quite a bit for us to cover today. Uh, in, in way of just kind of framing uh, what we're covering today, last week uh, Pastor Tyler made a statement that uh, at first I was like, I don't know if he's right. And then I was corrected when I looked. Um, chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, five chapters of the book of John are dedicated to a few hours in Christ's life. Uh, it is the night before he is uh, arrested and the trial and then the crucifixion. And so a quarter of the book is dedicated to just a few hours of Jesus' life. I'd never really noticed that before. Uh, I blame my seminary professors for not having drawn uh, my attention to that. But um, pretty remarkable if you think about it. Um, just hours, literally hours before he would be crucified, uh, this is what was on his mind. All right, And so all of Scripture is important but that just seems to have a weight to it as well. Uh, keep in mind also, John chapter 13, I'm going to read verse 1, and then we'll get into our text for today. Uh, verse, verse 1 says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, notice this, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And so that's kind of an uh, umbrella verse over these five chapters. And some commentators would even say that's kind of the umbrella verse over all of the Gospel of John, this idea that he loved them to the end. And so chapter 13, verses 1 through 17, Jesus washes the disciples' feet. Uh, that's the context of this morning's passage. After he has washed their feet, uh, we kind of pick up in this story of what's happening. So I'm going to read... Uh, Chapter 13, verses 18 through 38. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at each other, and certain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why Jesus said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what you need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. 
So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and, glory, uh, and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I have said to the Jews, so now I say also to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for an opportunity once again this morning to gather together. We thank you, Christ, for your word. We thank you that we are in a nation where we can come together and read your word, God, without fear of persecution. And yet in the midst of that, God, I ask that you would speak through your word, that we would grow closer to you and to one another, that you would use your word this morning to pierce our hearts, to bring conviction where needed, to bring encouragement where needed as well. In Christ's name, I pray. Amen. So that's a lot of text for us to cover this morning, and, and really a very interesting passage of Scripture as Christ is uh, using this time with his disciples these last few hours to continue to teach them. So this morning, there's a lot of different directions we could go in. There's probably some directions you wish that I would go in, uh, but uh, we can only cover a certain amount of text. So three points, that's pretty typical, right? Three main points for the sermon today. Uh, as a way of an outline. First point, the abandonment of friends. First point is the abandonment of friends. Second is the acknowledgement of deity. The acknowledgement of deity. And then third, the apologetic of love. The apologetic of love. So the abandonment of friends, the acknowledgement of deity, and the apologetic of love. And, and here's, here's the main point of the passage or of the message this morning. The most important thing about us is how and what we love. All right, so if you get that, you're like, I'm good, let's go. Time for lunch. The most important thing about us is how and what we love. So let's take a little deeper dive into the text. All right, so first point, the abandonment of friends. So verses 18 through 30, we read specifically about Judas Verses 38 through 36, kind of the end of this, we read specifically about Peter. And we know that Jesus knows what it is like because of this to be wounded by those who are closest to him. I think sometimes when we read scripture, we take the humanity out of it, right? Like we, we forget that these are real people. We forget that Jesus is a real person who experienced pain and abandonment. All right, so uh, when I was in elementary school, right, you have this view of your teachers, all right, so there's some teachers in here, 
And if you've ever, you know, remember in elementary school, when you saw your teacher outside the classroom, like I remember seeing the principal of my school, like at the grocery store. And I, it never hit me that maybe this person would like go to the grocery store, right? Because Mr. McDowell, like, you know, he had a polo on and then a suit coat and he had khakis on all the time and he was wearing jeans. And I thought, that's not right. He can't do that. I think he even asked my parents, is he allowed to do that? Like he's at the grocery store wearing jeans. Like I had this view of him that he wasn't like a real person. He was, he was, the, he was the principal, right? And so sometimes when we read the text, we take the humanity out of it and we then remove the emotions, all right? So consider the disciples themselves, right? They had been with Jesus for three years. They had experienced all types of things with him, uh, some even persecution to some degree, having walked with him. They know that there was arguments and discussions with the religious leaders. They know that there was miracles that Christ had performed. Uh, earlier in John's gospel, right, you have the raising of Lazarus, right? That pretty, pretty high point in that, but they'd experienced some low points as well. But they had left everything, right? They had left their jobs, right? Like leave the nets behind. You're going to be fishers of men. So the disciples had a lot invested in this relationship, but let's not forget the fact that Christ also knows what it's like. Okay. Verse 21 of what we just read, he was troubled in his spirit. We're going to, we're going to see that actually again in chapter 14, but that's for another preacher to cover next week. But this idea that he was troubled in his spirit. And so as evangelical Christians, at times we downplay the significance of the humanity of Christ. And yet John 1:14 says what? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Do we really believe that Jesus experienced everything, every aspect of humanity? Have we really truly embraced that? I know at times I don't. Right now, apart from sin... He has experienced every aspect. This is affirmed many places in Scripture, probably one of the most clear places. I'll give you a couple of Scripture references. But the book of Hebrews talks about the humanity of Christ. Right? Let me read just a couple of verses for you. Hebrews 2, 17 through 18. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest, in the service of God to make propitiation, that's satisfying God's wrath, for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So the writer of Hebrews is talking about the humanity of Christ. He's experienced what we've experienced. Later on, Hebrews 4.15, some of you are familiar with this passage. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So we want to make sure that, yes, we hold to the deity of Jesus Christ, and we're going to even talk about that in this passage, but we understand the humanity of Christ as well. As I said, those who are with him, his disciples had been with him for three years. Three years, like, like essentially living together, traveling together, experiencing all type of life together. But notice their response when Jesus says to them, one of you will betray me. All right, so back in John chapter 13, verse 22, the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. We read in the text then that, that Peter motions to John, who is close to Jesus, and says, you know what, try to figure out who, who this is. 
So not to uh, do too much to ruin your view of what the Last Supper looked like. It's not like the picture, okay? And I think we went over this before, right? Uh, the, the way that they were arranged at the table would be a little bit different. So John would have been close to Jesus at the seating at the table and would have been able to ask Jesus. So we see that from John's gospel that Peter's like, hey, try to find out who it is. Uh, Matthew's gospel says this in Matthew 26, 22. They were very sorrowful and began to say to him, uh, sorry, began to say to him one after the other, is it I, Lord? Like they, in, in Matthew's gospel, at least they had some self-reflection to say, am I the one that's going to betray you? That, that's a probably pretty good place to start. Yet in Luke's gospel, we see the kind of the range of emotions that the disciples are going through. Luke 22, 23, they began to question one another, which of them it could be that was going to do this, ultimately leading to conversation, who was the greatest? So their humanity comes out in the midst of Christ saying, one of you will betray me. But here's the interesting thing. I don't see in Scripture where any of the disciples who have traveled with Jesus for these three years actually were empathetic to the fact that he was the one going to be betrayed. They were so busy, like, is it me? It can't be me. I'm sure it's not me. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that. When, when, when the Lord of the universe said this is going to happen, and then I'll say, I, I'm so sorry that you're going to go through this. So Jesus knows what it's like to be abandoned by those closest to him. And I think we read those first few verses about Judas, and we say, you know, Gabe, you know, there, there's prophetic uh, words that would indicate that this is going to happen. And so, you know, Judas is kind of fulfilling what God has set before him, and there's a lot of theological things we can go into. We're not going to take time today to do that. Some of you are upset that we're not, but that's fine. But what about Peter? Okay? Judas, yeah, it was, that was going to happen. What about Peter? Peter denied him not once, not twice, three times. Judas might have been kind of on the fringe of the disciples, but, but Peter was in that inner circle, right? Peter, James, and John. Like he was, he was tight. He was very close to Christ. I mean, Peter was there in the Mount of Transfiguration. Not all the disciples experienced that, right? Peter was there. Uh, Peter was basically the spokesman for the disciples themselves. Peter was the one at Caesarea Philippi who said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So not, not Peter. Like Judas, I get it. Why Peter? So to take a moment to think about the significance of not just someone in your friend group that's an acquaintance or, yeah, no, we're friends. We're pretty close. I'm talking the closest relationships humanly possible and that person denies you. Jesus knows what it's like to have his friends abandon him. And we often forget the humanity of Christ. That's point number one. Point number two is the acknowledgement of his deity. Through all of this, Jesus was not surprised. In these verses, what we have is something Christ saying in a few hours these things are going to happen and if uh, you skip ahead a few chapters to chapter 18 you see where all these things happen he's betrayed by Judas and in chapter 18 he's actually denied by Peter three times 
but Christ saw this coming. This is an affirmation of his deity as well. So we looked at his humanity, we look at his deity. Scripture affirms that God knows all things, right? Uh, so think to yourself, what is that theological term? All right, God is omniscient, or he is all-knowing, right? And part of that omniscience is not just that God knows everything that's happening right now, but God has knowledge of what will happen in the future, right? This is called God's foreknowledge. He, he knows it beforehand. So Psalm 139, if you want to turn there, that's fine. If not, I'm just going to read it. I'm not going to give you much time, but Psalm 139 actually affirms God's uh, all-knowing, and he's all-powerful, and he's present everywhere. But the first few verses of Psalm 139, listen to what it says. O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path in my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. Notice verse 4. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. God has foreknowledge. You hem me in, behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. And so Jesus, in John chapter 13, in the midst of being abandoned by his friends, has knowledge of what's going to happen in the future. John 13, 21, back to our passage for today. Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Not one of you has betrayed me. One of you will betray me. It is something that happened in the future. John 13, 38, speaking of Peter. Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. So why is it important that Jesus has knowledge of the future, or that he affirms this? First of all, two, two key points. He affirms that neither the betrayal nor the denials took Jesus by surprise. He is using this as an opportunity to prepare his disciples for what is coming over the next few hours. Listen to what one uh, commentator said. He said this, Jesus knew how much Judas's duplicity would shake the faith of the other 11 disciples. Perhaps they might think that Judas had outwitted Jesus. They needed to be assured that this was the outworking of God's plan and that Jesus was fully aware of what was about to transpire. That is why he tells them before it comes. Again, imagine for a moment that those closest to you, imagine your family, right? And one of the people in your family betrays you. That is a tendency not to just affect that individual, but it could tear the family apart. But Jesus is preparing them before this happens. The second, I think, significant thing is that this, as I've already mentioned, does in fact affirm the deity of Christ, the fact that he has knowledge of the future. It takes place, uh, again, John 13, 19. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Notice how Christ is using these circumstances, using the uh, betrayal of Judas to ultimately lead to belief of his disciples. We, we, when we started the Gospel of John in the series, we talked about everything that is put in this book. John says uh, later, in, uh, later in the book, he said, everything that's put in here is written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And through believing, you may have life in his name. He's modeling this for his disciples, even in the midst of the pain that he's going through by the abandonment of his friends. What a wonderful testimony in these few verses of not only the humanity of Christ, but his deity as well in the person of Jesus Christ. And so 
those two points then lead to kind of the center of the passage. Starting on the outside, I'm working in. The center of the passage is this apologetic of love. So right in the middle of his foretelling of the betrayal and the denials is a seemingly out-of-place command of Jesus to love one another. Notice again John 13, 31 through 35. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while while I'm with you, you will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. Notice verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. There's much in this passage, as I said, that we could speak about. Even in these few verses, uh, the glory of Jesus, right? What does that mean? Uh, the fact that he's going away and they can't go where he's going. What does that mean? Well, some of those concepts we're going to look at in later chapters in John's gospel. So I want to focus in for this section on verses 34 and 35, where he gives the new commandment. As I mentioned, this seems a little odd maybe at first. It seems maybe a little bit out of place, but the more you think about it, hopefully the more it makes sense. In the middle of the examples of his humanity and his deity, he provides a reminder of the central focus of love. And love really is the central theme throughout all of Scripture. Okay? Let me, let me give you just a three or four Scripture passages. Matthew 22, 36 through 40. Some of you might have already went here in your mind. He was asked, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Okay, what, the Old Testament, what is the greatest commandment? He said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And then he goes on to say, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 40, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The Old Testament is summarized with love God and love others. John 3.16, verse most of you know. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The whole reason Jesus came, he was driven by love. Consider Paul's statements in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Unfortunately, it's a passage of scripture that we pretty much only hear at weddings. All right, that's great. Keep, keep saying it at weddings, but like it, it has context beyond just weddings, right? Verses 1 through 3. If I speak in the tongue of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, shows to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. The Christian life is lived through love. You with me? Now, if you're like me, you're like, okay, that's great. Love's good. Okay. How's this new, though? He said this is a new commandment. <laughs> like, like, you just said, like, this is all throughout Scripture. I'm like, well, I don't know. Let's move on. Okay, just kidding. Um, how is this new? 
Notice what he does to this command for love in verse 35. I'm sorry, um, verse 34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Then what does he say? Just as I have loved you. What's new about this commandment? They have the example of Jesus now. That is the standard. We didn't have that in the past. They've been with him for three years. They know how he has loved them. And that is now the standard. We, we see that Jesus has a, it's a new urgency. It's a new power. It's a new example that he has given them of what love is to look like. He, he's about to, in the next four chapters, kind of unleash and build like these huge theological boulders, okay, that are coming, right? Like, like uh, the giving of the Holy Spirit and the unique ministry of the Holy Spirit. And it's to your advantage that I go away because I'll ask the Father and he'll send the helper. Like, like the Holy Spirit's work is coming. That's huge, right? Uh, you need to remain in me, chapter 15, like abide in me, right? And you'll bear much fruit. Um, I'm going to prepare a home for you. That's a pretty big theological statement. For, uh, and then chapter 17, the glory that he has with the Father, right? So huge theological themes, and yet all of that, he said, has to be grounded in love. All right, so pastor, author, theologian, Paul David Tripp. Let me read a quote that he has that when I read it, I was like, nah, it's pretty good. Paul David Tripp, you're good, but I think you're wrong. And then I read it again, and I was like, mm, I think you're right. This is what he said. I'm deeply persuaded that the foundation for people transforming ministry is not sound theology. It is love. There's more to it. Let me read that statement again, though. This is where I was like, mm, I don't know. I'm deeply persuaded that the foundation for people transforming ministry is not sound theology. It is love. Without love, our theology is a boat without oars. Love is what drove God to send and sacrifice his son. Love led Christ to subject himself to a sinful world in the horrors of the cross. Love is what causes him to seek and save the lost and to persevere until each of his children is transformed into his image. His love will not rest until all of his children are at his side in glory. The hope of every sinner does not rest in theological answers, but in the love of Christ for his own. Without it, we have no hope personally, relationally, or eternally. So the question is, is the foundation of our ministry love? Is the center of what we do here at CCF love? Christ is faced with his friends abandoning him. He knows what is about to happen. And he commands them right in the midst of that to love with the love that he has loved them. Okay, so two questions that kind of haunt me. I'll be, I'll be honest as I read this, that I want us to consider here today. Question number one. <clears throat> have we become so nuanced in our theology that we have become unloving? Have we become so nuanced in our theology that we have become unloving? So, at the risk of never preaching again, I'm going to read a joke. Okay? 
This, this dates back to the 1970s, and some of you are in here like, I don't remember those times. Um, uh, a comedian, Emo Phillips, all right, had a joke from the 70s. According to some random website, it was voted the, the most, uh, the funniest religious joke of all time back in the 1990s, which is a great generation, in case you're wondering, um, the 1990s, all right? I'm not reading it necessarily because it's funny, because I don't think any of you will laugh. A couple of you might be like, huh, okay. <laughs> but it's not particularly funny. But with comedy, there's often a sliver of truth. I'm afraid this one hits home a, a, a little bit too much in my own life. So maybe you'll find it beneficial as well. Here's how it goes. Once I saw this guy on a bridge about to jump, I said, don't do it. He said, nobody loves me. I said, God loves you. Do you believe in God? He said, yes. I said, are you a Christian or a Jew? He said, a Christian. I said, me too. Protestant or Catholic? He said, Protestant. I said, me too. What franchise? He said, Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? He said, Northern Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region or Northern Conservative Baptist Eastern Region? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1879 or Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. I said, die, heretic, and I pushed him off. All right, some of you did laugh. Have we become so nuanced in our theology that we have become unloving? Church family, like one of our core doctrines, the first one we talk about every year when we go over our four core doctrine or four core values is doctrine, right? Like, like doctrine is vitally important. And I'm not trying to say it, paint a picture that these are juxtaposed, right? That these are uh, contrary to one another. But if our theology is not rooted in love, then it's not good theology. Look at how Jesus treated the Pharisees. They had plenty of theology. They did not have rightly ordered love. I was talking about this sermon with a friend, a colleague from Liberty, and he said, you know, uh, St. Augustine, like, like one of the kind of summary themes of a lot of his writings as he said, like, if you read the Bible and it causes you to love God more and love others more, you've read it correctly. I'm like, well, he, he's way smarter than I am. But that is his affirmation. So here's the deal. There are some of us in this room, and myself included, who need to hear this. I read our posts. I watch our posture. I listen to our arrogant theological superiority. And I can assure you that it is dangerous. At times, we're more interested in winning the battle than winning the person. Follow some religious leaders on Twitter, and, and, and within a week, you will know what I'm talking about. And this is contrary to the gospel, right? And if you're sitting here like, is he talking about me? Yes, I am. And why I say this, because I'm talking about all of us, myself included. We can become so nuanced that we lose love. Perhaps some of us need to spend a little less time 
Okay? Now hear me out. A little less time talking about the intricacies of our theology and a little bit more time living them out. What are we known by as a congregation and as individuals? By this will they know that you are my disciples, that your theology is sound. Nope. Nope. That you have love for one another. Question two. What if God designed relationships to make us holy more than to make us happy? What if God designed relationships to make us holy more than to make us happy? If you're familiar with the author Gary Thomas, you know that I stole that line from him and modified it from his book, Sacred Marriage. Uh, In it, he says, what if God designed marriage to make us holy more than make us happy? But I think that argument can be applied to other relationships as well. John 13, 34, and 35, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus doesn't give us an out on this. He doesn't say love the lovable. He doesn't say, you know, love those who agree with you. He doesn't say love those who are just of the same theological persuasion of you. He says, love one another. Love one another. I know relationships can be difficult. I know there are some sitting in here right now that you are in a relationship and it is on the brink of disaster. What does God call us to do? He calls us to love. Husbands and wives, parents and children, colleagues at work, lifelong friendships. Some of us feel betrayed or abandoned and we feel like we know what's about to happen. Sounds a little bit what Jesus was going through. And what did he do? He loved. Jesus knows what it is like. And in the midst of that, he says, love one another. So how do these work together? Jesus knows, he has foreknowledge, that he is about to be betrayed and denied. He's about to be abandoned. And yet he loves his disciples enough to put their needs above his own by giving him them the new commandment. And the overarching theme of these chapters, as I've already said, is having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, some of you are sitting right now saying, (laughs) okay, first of all, you don't know what I'm going through. I don't. God does. And you say, Gabe, I I cannot do it. And I would say, that's exactly where you need to be. Good. Because if you think you can do it, you are sadly mistaken. I already said chapters 14, 15, 16, 17, huge theological boulders. You know what's a theme of chapters 14, 15, and 16? Jesus saying, hey, when I go away, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. And he's going to testify of me. And throughout the rest of the New Testament, you know what we see? We see the Holy Spirit working in the lives of the saints... For when them say, I, I can't do it, but, but yet through Christ in me, yet through the work of the Holy Spirit on my life. We agree with the Apostle Paul, right? When he says, 
God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. If you're saying, Gabe, I can't do it, you are right, you cannot. But the Holy Spirit can. Let's not think about the teachings of Jesus um, concerning the Holy Spirit are not also supported by his own Life. He is not just giving us a statement. He is literally living this out. Bruce Ware, theologian and author, he has a book called The Man Christ Jesus. He reflects on Jesus' humanity. He doesn't take away from his divinity, but he said we don't do enough time reflecting on his humanity. Notice how he explains Jesus' reliance on the Holy Spirit. I kind of want to end with this. Hopefully let this sink in, the significance of what Christ is commanding, but what he's living out for us, this is what Bruce Ware says. Although Jesus was the God-man, deity and humanity, right? And the same person, such that he possessed a fully divine as well as a fully human nature, it seems clear from the study we've undertaken to conclude that the bulk of Jesus' day-to-day living occurred as he fulfilled his calling obeyed the Father, resisted temptation, and performed his conformatory miracles, the miracles that pointed to who he was, fundamentally as a man empowered by the Spirit. How did Jesus do what he did? As a man empowered by the Spirit. He goes on to say, he lived his life as one of us. He accepted the limitations of his humanity, relied upon the guidance of the Father that he would give him and the power of the Spirit would provide for him to live day by day in perfect obedience to the Father. I think that's a helpful recognition. Day by day, how do we do that? Through the empowerment, through the indwelling, through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Jesus did not only provide the command, he provided the example. And through his death and resurrection, and now the unique ministry of the Holy Spirit, he provides the enablement for that to actually happen. So as we look at the events in chapter 13, and as for the next few weeks and even months, we walk through these next chapters talking about the night before Jesus was actually betrayed and arrested and denied and delivered to be crucified, we need to keep in mind that Jesus knows what it's like, that he gave us an example and he gave us a command to love. Band's going to come back up. We're going to sing Amazing Grace. But before we do, I want to give you a little bit of time to just reflect. Maybe think about those couple questions. Theologically, is your understanding driving you to love more? In your relationships, you understand that God is using them as a sanctifying work in your life through the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, God, for your word. I thank you for the way in which you work through the Holy Spirit in our lives. God, I pray for those, God, who've been Christians for years and may be harboring resentment, bitterness towards one another. God, I pray that you would help them break free from that. God, not in their own strength, but through the power of the Holy Spirit. God, I pray for forgiveness for those of us who think we have it figured out theologically and that has led us to be unloving. 
God, may we be known as a community of believers who love you and love others. God, and I pray for those who may be far from you. Maybe they've not experienced your love. God, maybe there are some in this room who have seen the way Christians treat one another and has driven them farther from you, God. I ask, God, through the work of the Holy Spirit, that you would draw them to you, that they would surrender their lives, that they would believe that Jesus is the Christ and through that have life in his name. I thank you, God, for this congregation. I thank you that we can learn together. God, I thank you that we can hold one another accountable. May we do this for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.